We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Joan Alanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. Damn glad to be here. And Don, I feel like I say this a lot, but tonight, it's special. It is special. It is. It really is. is. We're recording for the very first time in the treasure state, good old Montana, sometimes known as Big Sky Country. Although we're a little stretched from the mountains here at Meadowlark Brewing in Sydney, I guess you could say, though, I'm still damn glad to be here. I, I am damn glad to be here. And actually, it is the first time that we have ever recorded outside in, of technically the Midwest. Technically the Midwest. Yeah. So, Montana, you get the honor of hosting us outside the technical Midwest for the very mm-hmm. first time. It's a really yeah. big deal. It is. It's a yeah, big I'm deal. Excited. I'm excited yeah. about it. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we appreciate you. Thank you for having us. And a big thanks to everyone who takes a little bit of time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. We love to read about the comments and the feedback. And I think sometimes it, it helps encourage us. It helps us get better. It helps other people wonder about us and, and whether or not they want to give us a listen. But Don, I'm kind of curious. What are people saying about Midwest Murder these days? Yeah, and it, it does a few other things too. It, it helps us move us up on the list of podcasts, if you will, I, you know, the, like the house with recognition. Absolutely. Yeah, those yep. things. Yep. I, I'm not, I don't know. I'm still like on the billboard top 100 type thing. I'm not that old, but I feel old sometimes. Anyway, it does, it does great things. I'll just say that it humbles me. Sometimes it does those things. It gives us t-shirt material as in like t-shirt you know, material is a good thing. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. It does lots of things. So we appreciate it. Good, bad, ugly, all of it. So a G J L VDC. I don't this one's even... from AJLVDC. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gave us five stars. Review! Exclamation point. I absolutely love the podcast. I've listened to many true crime podcasts, and this is by far my favorite. I've been binging it since I discovered it a couple of weeks ago. My one and only criticism is that Jonah interrupts far too often. What? Specifically on No, top. I don't. How? What? Wow. Teed you up on that one. Good job. And that's enough now. We're good. <laughs> specifically on Don's episodes. When he interrupts, he will often talk over her excessively until she inevitably stops talking and lets him finish his thought. You're welcome. Oh. I understand some interrupting is a natural part of podcasts, but this is to the point where it is distracting and is taking away from Don's presentations. This woman has far more patience than I. Nobody has ever called me patient. Wow. Okay. This is... First time. You can hear the smile in my voice here. Wow. This is crazy. Thank you. Uh, because I would have snapped on so many occasions. Jonah, I genuinely hope you can take this review as constructive criticism as someone who really loves the show, despite the annoyance of your frequent interjections. Other than that, 10 out of 10 and keep up the great work. Well, let me oh. annoy my way on in here. Oh. Oh. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. That's, oh. It's five stars, don't it, it, it? Five stars. You know, in mm-hmm. spite of my interruptions, we still, you know, I still yeah. struggled our way up there. And I do, hey, I, I'm, I'm aware of it. I think some of my interruptions there in the early episodes, they annoy even me looking back on them, but we were growing and, and heading in different directions in the podcast. I hope, I hope you feel there are less interruptions and concurrent to that. A lot of people say they love the interruptions, so it's you can't please everybody. A lot of people do. Yeah, is that, is that is that a thing? Yeah, a lot of people say they love them. Yes, absolutely. Really, the banter and the interruptions and the things that goes on. Yeah, one of the well, last reviews we read said that. Well, I think banter is different than inter- than the interruptions. I yeah. think those are different. Okay, those are different things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love the interrupt. What can we say? I know, and you know yeah. what? I interrupt too. I get it. I get it. Happens to the best of us. It really does. <laughs> it does. And uh, the worst of us, which is yeah. me. 
Uh, Sarah Ellen, eight, uh, actually just this last month, five stars, love, exclamation point. I am so happy to have found this podcast. I listen to many podcasts and they all tend to tell the same stories. Most of the stories I have heard on this podcast are new to me. There is just enough banter between the co-host and Jonah has the perfect podcast voice. Oh. I also love that the stories I've heard on this podcast have a resolution. I hate when murderers get away with it. On that last note, don't we all? Yeah. Yeah. yeah for I sure. like stories with the resolution. For sure. And for those of you who have, if this is your first episode you've ever heard, uh, there are times that uh, I do have to hear um, my shitty reviews as well. Um, I, there was one time I got, I had, you to, don't have to remind I everybody had to, I, of the time. Uh, we, we do. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not there. There are times that I do too. So I know Jonah, you know, Jonah got picked apart tonight, but there are times I get picked apart too. So, oh yeah. We take yeah. our, we all take our punches. We do. <laughs> Hey, we, we have Midwest Murder Has merch available online. You can get it at www.2toomanyshirts.com slash Midwest hyphen murder. It's uh, all done locally in Minot, North Dakota. So we're excited about that. If you have t-shirt ideas, send them our way. Check us out. You can get a link to that on social media as well. We've also and, recently... And, oh, and oh, hold on. We oh, are... We're, oh, wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. I just interrupted you. That's <laughs> How okay. About that? uh, we're about to add a few more designs and also a few more items as well. So some new items and new designs in the okay in, uh, on merch. Cool. So I'm hoping by the time you hear this, it's we'll already there. Yeah. But for the live crowd tonight, boom. Yeah, you're in, you you're in, you're in on a secret that even I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. We also recently launched what some might call a fan club. It's called Club Midwest and we're doing something really fun with this. So every two, three months or so, we're doing an exclusive fan interaction and that's coming up here in about two weeks from the date of this recording. But Don and I are going to do a cooking show for all of our fans in Club Midwest. We're sending everybody the recipe. You can cook with us or not. We're going to host a neat little cooking show for everybody who is one of our Midwesty besties in Club Midwest. It's going to be fun, but you also get access to um, those interactions, early access to episodes, pre-release tickets. Uh, you get pre-access codes to pre-release tickets, as well as monthly merch giveaways for everybody in that. So thank you to everybody who signed up. We are an independently produced podcast. This is what we do for a living, and, and that's it. So all of this helps helps us. It helps keep Midwest Murder going. It helps pay for case files and keep us on the road. So we appreciate everybody going the extra mile to support what we do here at Midwest Murder. This show is also brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs, and this is a way for you to remember the favorite stories you've heard from your own family. It's like a podcast you can listen to with future generations of your uncle, your grandma, your dad, your mom, the person you love telling their life story. It's like having them get navigated through this cool interview chronologically of their life, 60 minute style. That's what we're doing with Midwest Murders, or with Midwest Murders, excuse me, with Midwest Memoirs. Wow. Yeah. Different, different show, different Way interview. Different, mm -hmm. Totally different style. So we, uh, we're, we're proud of that work that we do and keeping those stories alive for all the generations of families who contact us at Midwest Memoirs. In this episode of Midwest Murder, we're heading back to 2006. This was the year we learned not to go hunting with Donald Rumsfeld. Jack, <laughs> Jack Dorsey founded Twitter in 2006. Low-rise jeans with thongs, also known as a whale tail, Ugh. were super popular. And judging by some of them looks out there today, some of y'all know about Man. that style I'm talking about. That was in fashion back in 06, but so were fedoras, grills, Track suits, Ugg boots and mini skirts, Paris Hilton, K-Fed, and Lindsay Lohan. Mean girls, anyone? On Wednesdays, we wear pink. Yeah. There you go. Hannah Montana debuted on Disney Channel, Dexter on Showtime. In May 2006, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that Anna Nicole Smith could access her late husband's fortune. Rosie O'Donnell feuded with Donald Trump. And Mel Gibson racked up the DUIs and media scrutiny following his drunken anti-Semite tirade. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. That was like one of the first like viral crazy things that celebrities were doing when social media was just right. starting to creep up. Right. There was no yep. YouTube, so there was no video right. of it. it was, anyways, it's and the whole he, thing. And then he found God. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. made a movie about it. Yep. Yep. Anyways, Google purchased YouTube for... 1.65 billion 
In 2006, Apple introduced the mind-blowing technology of being able to watch a movie on your iPod, little 2.4-inch screen. And the closest thing we had to a smartphone back then was a BlackBerry. I still, in my iTunes library, I still have an episode of Royal Pains that show like from around that time. It would have been, or maybe like later 2000s, but because I was so gosh dang excited, I, I don't know, I probably spent like a million dollars on it. No, but probably like 10. It's like an episode and I was so excited to watch it on my iPad, iPod Nano. Yeah. It was, I was like, oh, it's so good. It was not. Groundbreaking technology. No. And of course, in 2006, MySpace, MySpace was on the verge of being ousted by Facebook. RIP MySpace. I know you're still out there, but... Trying to... Is it still out there? I think it's still out there. God, I wonder what my password would be. There's a way to unlock it. I wonder if I could still get into it, but like... It'd be worth it. And my top... probably got some gems on it. My top three friends. You know, in like 2006, I was... Ugh. How old was I? I was 20... uh, 20... Too old to be watching Hannah Montana. Way too old. Yeah. 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 I can't even do the math of how old I was. So how about that? Okay. After the research for this story was done and I had all my notes, I found myself wondering a lot about what causes seemingly decent, good people to snap, to fall so far down the moral cavern, it leads them to murder. Then I started to question if humans have effectively developed coping mechanisms that help us navigate life's most difficult circumstances. Our ability to cope, to face grief, to overcome adversity, to swallow the bitter pill of rejection is not born to us. In fact, some people lack those skills altogether, even though facing these moments is truly part of the human experience. Then, naturally, the ability should be within everyone to be able to cope, right? So how do we unlock that in more people? Could it have prevented someone's breakdown? Well, doesn't it... Aren't we products of our environment? Aren't we conditioned? Aren't we the adversity we've dealt with in life? Like, I mean, it's our personality types, any trauma we faced. I, I mean, it's... If Mercury's in retrograde, I, I mean, isn't doesn't it all matter? Like... Right. Yeah, it, it, it there does. There's so just, many factors, there's no right? right? There's no right right or wrong answer here. It's oh, just okay. open-ended, open-ended thinking and just a direction that I, that I had taken uh, in, oh. in trying to understand what had, what had happened, you know, and my, my will to want to know how does somebody get there. And of course, I do believe we have unlocked plenty of valuable sure. coping mechanisms. People are using them. It is happening. I think I misunderstood the assignment. Okay. There was a time, personally, where I had to do something so difficult, so emotionally taxing that I felt like it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. But I felt stupid about that, like I didn't deserve to feel that way because so many other people were going through much worse. And then a friend told me, the most difficult thing you've ever had to do is the most difficult thing you've ever had to do. There is no other when it comes to that. Looking back, it sounds really simple. But I needed to hear that. Someone to validate and understand that this was really hard for me and to tell me that's okay. Our experiences, however similar, are vastly different in how we perceive, process, and react to them. Most of us probably remember Newton's laws. I always found the third law most interesting, that for every action in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Of course, Newton was discussing the laws of physics, of objects in reality. But I found a correlating translation for emotions. Actually, I found a bunch of them, but this is the one that landed best with me. The law of emotional inertia, that is a body at peace, remains at peace, and a person who is emotional will remain emotional unless influenced by another force. The law of emotional acceleration A person will be moved to an emotional response when emotional forces are thrust upon them with sufficient urgency and intensity. And last, the law of emotional reactions. For every emotion, there is an equal and opposite reaction. 
unless you're dealing with sociopaths, in which case these rules just don't apply. Examples of that, pain creates empathy, insults create shame, accomplishment creates jealousy, anger and fear create one another, kindness creates gratitude, our emotions volley back and forth, triggering offensive and defensive reactions in one another all the time. Today's story is of one such emotional reaction that led to tragedy in the sleepy South Dakota capital city of Pierre. Pierre. Pierre? Pierre. Pierre? It's actually Pierre. It's Pierre. No, it's Pierre. Well, in North Dakota, it was taught as Pierre to me. Well, back in even though when I had to memorize all the state capitals. Even though it's better on top in North Dakota, um, <laughs> people in South Dakota would kick your ass. It's Pierre. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. On February 8th, 2006, at 10.32 a.m., a call was placed to 911 by Brian Clark, manager of the local Kmart. Quote, I want to place a missing persons report. Who is missing? Tammy Rhea, spelled R-E-A-Y. He spells out the last name. Tammy Rhea is employed as the assistant manager at Kmart. She was supposed to work at 10 that morning. Now, it seems a little odd, right? A manager filing a missing persons report on his employee that's just 30 minutes late. Nevertheless, Brian goes on to explain foul play could be suspected here. Why do you think that, sir? Quote, I hope this is discreet, but me and her have been having an affair. Apparently, her husband has found out about it. Well, sir, uh, it's not going to be discreet anymore. Yeah. Your discretion, gone. It turns out, Brian was prompted to make the call to police by Tammy's mother, Bonnie. Bonnie and Tammy spoke on the phone every morning, but Tammy hadn't called her that morning. When Bonnie didn't get a call from Tammy, she called her granddaughter, Haley, at school. Haley said the last time she saw her mother was the night before. Haley's dad gave her a ride to school that morning. Bonnie, who lives about eight or nine hours away over in Wyoming, then called Brian at Kmart to ask if he had seen Tammy. That's when Bonnie found out Tammy wasn't at work either. The 911 operator ultimately asks Brian to file a police report down at the station Pierre is a small town of 14,000, so it's like a five-minute drive from Kmart, and the missing re person report becomes official just after 11 a.m. Fortunately, investigators took this very seriously. They made calls to family and friends. Detectives were dispatched to several locations, including the Rhea home, the school of Haley, and to Walmart, where Tammy's husband of 14 years, Brad, is employed as a manager. So Haley is middle school age, but, 12 years old. And Haley is uh, the Brad daughter. and Tammy's daughter. Okay. Yep. All right. And also, how does that work? So, whoa, Tammy works at Kmart and her husband works at Walmart? Indeed. Wow. But Tammy's boyfriend is, of course, the manager at, at Kmart, Kmart here. So, uh, the retail thing going on. Mm -hmm. So, investigators go to these different places. Walmart, the school, the house, they find the Rhea home is empty. From the outside looking in, nothing really seems to be amiss. Although officers notice Tammy's Dodge Durango is parked inside the garage. It was Detective Troy Swenson who first interacted with Haley. The 12-year-old was pulled from classes at Georgia Morse Middle School, not really sure of what was going on. Detective Swenson's goal was to learn more about the family dynamic. According to Haley, her parents rarely argue and they never hit one another. But she does say, quote, My mom doesn't love my dad anymore and my dad is never home from work. It was just a few days prior that Haley's parents sat her down to explain they were getting a divorce. Detective Swenson softly tells Haley that her mother is missing. Okay, I know 
it's likely not legally required for a parent to be present at this point, you know, because the, the child isn't being questioned. But I feel like this is in very, very poor taste. I felt like I'm it was bothered. walking. I'm already bothered by this. I felt like it was walking a bit of a line. But you are looking at a situation where they think it's possible. The dad had something to do with it. The mom is gone. I know. And yeah. all of the nearest family, nine hours away. There's I get no yeah. one else there with this girl. That's fair. But this is this is also why we have children's advocacy. Exactly. Uh, things yep. like that. Yep. So I, I, I feel you. Meanwhile, after finding very little at the Rie home, a patrol officer was assigned to watch the residence while investigators interviewed Brad in the security room at Walmart. Brad tells police he hasn't seen Tammy since the previous day. She wasn't home when he got there. He suggests perhaps Tammy finally left him. Lieutenant Patzner asks, Do you think it's possible she could be packing her clothes at your house right now? Brad says, Yeah, yeah, that's possible. And then he signs off on police searching the Rie home for Tammy. He accompanies investigators along the ride from Walmart to his house. The interior of the home was orderly, empty. Everything looked as it should. No signs of struggle or violence. Nothing that set off alarm bells. In the garage, however, it didn't take a keen eye to notice blood droplets on the ground next to Tammy's Dodge Durango. The blood was running along the running board and dripping onto the concrete garage floor. When officers opened the door, the smell of bleach and cleaning solutions was overpowering, and there were clear swirls of cleanliness along the leather. At that point, detectives pulled back. It became immediately clear to them this was foul play, and they wanted to get an official warrant before investigating any further. Brad was then taken into custody and brought down to the station. So it was three hours after the 911 call on February 8th that Brad Rhea was brought in to the station for a more formal interview. By now, detectives have spoken with Tammy's friends and family. No one has heard from her. They have a timeline of her activities from the previous day. In the morning, Tammy and Brian met at the Fawn Motel, fooled around, and then later that day, Tammy went to the Georgia Morse Middle School to watch Haley's basketball game. That was followed by fast food and shopping before the two went home. Haley was tucked into bed by her mom at around 9 p.m. So at this point, it would seem Haley was the last person to see her mother. Bran is interviewed while investigators get the warrant and begin the search. He's asked, Have you hit anything with your vehicle lately? No. Yeah, have you ran over an animal? No. Brad is nervous, quiet. He's wearing a goose-down jacket. His voice is hoarse. It's like a whisper. He leans back and forth in the chair, peering up at the detective with beady eyes, and he asks, Did you guys find something? We found blood on the running board, dripping on the concrete. Quote, Let's assume that is your wife's blood. How would it have got there? And how do you explain the very strong odor of cleaning product? I don't know, a mumbly reply from Brad. Eventually, Brad Rhea chokes out a story. He got home at 10.30 the previous night. Tammy wasn't there. A little while later, Tammy parked her Durango in the driveway and then got in another vehicle and left. Naturally, Brad scurried after her, jumping into the Durango to give chase. So the investigator asks him, why did you take the Durango and not your truck? Brad, quote, the Durango's a lot faster. I mean, it's more maneuverable. I would have to disagree. I have driven a Durango before. That thing drives like a lumber wagon, but that's <laughs> fine. Yeah, well... In spite of those alleged advantages, sure, sure. I'll give him that. Brad's also alleged pursuit was a total failure, and he claims that he lost the other vehicle with Tammy, but continued driving around in search of his wife. And it was during this extended search that the Durango broke down on the side of the road. This drew the attention of a South Dakota Highway Patrol. 
It was around 1.40 a.m. when the stop occurred. It was recorded on VHS. In the tape, Brad sounds and acts really nervous, and he doesn't have an ID. He's breathing heavy, and his behavior leads to the trooper to pull him back into the patrol car for further questioning. But he's clearly not been drinking, and there doesn't seem to be anything amiss. Brad tells the highway patrol he just ran to the store real quick, and that's why he didn't have his ID, and everything checks out. Brad goes along his way. That's it. So the detective asks, so you lied to a police officer? And Brad says, yes, I did. I didn't feel it was his business to know my wife had left me. So throughout the interview, Brad, it's also a, I mean, it's also an a misdemeanor in some states, but it's fine. What's yeah. that? Lying to law enforcement, oh, but, you know, okay. whatever, Fair. Like, whatever works. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he could have just said nothing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So throughout the interview, Brad continuously says he doesn't know how the blood got in the Durango, even though he's clearly the last person who drove it. Finally, Brad said he doesn't know who Tammy is having an affair with. He never asked because he didn't want to know. And detectives are like, you're full of shit. That's the first thing anybody would want to know if they found that out. They found it was really hard for them to believe that he didn't know who her lover was. And they pressure him to, quote, do the right thing and tell us what happened to Tammy. Quote, Brad, we never fought ever. We always treated each other with respect. Brad, you know that she's dead. No. Brad has willingly sat through this interview for nearly five hours. He is asked again by the, by the lieutenant to do the right thing. Where is Tammy so we can find her right now? And Brad says, quote, you know, all this evidence points at me, but I'm hoping the body is found because it will be something to set me free. And there's an odd uptick to his voice as he delivers that last line. At that point, Brad asks for an attorney. In response, detectives decide there is enough to charge him with murder. With I think it's interesting that he, that he claims that they never fought and that they always treated each other with respect. And, uh, like nobody believes, nobody believes that anybody who's been in a relationship, that is absolutely not the truth. It, that, that is, that is. That you never fight and it, always treat each other with respect. That is 1000% a lie. Okay. Wow. I mean, I, I just feel like there's a lot of, lot of couples out there that are deeply insulted by that Don who have just never fought and get along and everything's great and perfect and smiley. And, you know, they have 2.7 kids and a fence and one and a half dogs, probably oh, too many cats. Must be and fun a bunch being God's favorite, but fine. Okay. <laughs> okay. Perhaps I'm just being too open and honest. Fine. Yeah. No, I think my math is off on that one. <laughs> So how do you get 0.7 children, but fine. Precisely. Yeah. With Brad now in custody and the warrant available for the Rhea property at that same day, detectives get all the way inside the Durango and they find there is significantly more blood than they expect. It was soaked onto the floor mats and into the folds of the seats. Essentially, all the parts of the interior where cloth met leather had sponged blood. A more thorough investigation of the home interior provides no deeper clues or significant evidence. There's no murder weapon or witnesses, nothing definitive within the evidence collected to directly prove Brad murdered Tammy. So it was time to pull back and evaluate the case. Detectives decide to interview the other person of interest, Tammy's manstress, Brian Clark. Did you come up with that one yourself? I mean, Google helped a little. But yeah. Yeah. It was. Wow. Brian is asked to come down for an interview, and he shows up at the police station with his attorney. Now. That's a good move. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying it's unwise, but it's also a red flag, which is I kind mean, of. I mean, is it? Yeah. Yeah. To, to call, I mean, the cops who were talking about it said it was a red flag to them. So I'm going to say it's a red flag. Now, I think it's smart. So it's kind of messed up when you think about the cops thinking it's a red flag when somebody comes in prepared with their lawyer. But given how quickly things can go wrong or be manipulated a certain way during these things, yeah, show up with your lawyer. It's smart. 
Damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's true. Smart move, red flag. So Brian says, yesterday we spent the afternoon together. We went to the Fawn Motel, fooled around, and then I went home. Brian is politely told to confirm his whereabouts the night before. This is not an exciting prospect for Brian Clark. He's married with two kids and nervously asks if his wife will have to find out about this. What do you think, Don? Is his wife going to have to find out? Well, yeah, she's going to have yeah. to find out. Um, he's got to loop her in uh, on his yeah, on, on his girlfriend. Probably. Yeah. I mean, there's a good chance she's going to find out. Uh, and that's that's what he has to lose. Right. You know, but uh, I mean, so that I mean, that's what he has on the line. Right. If, if for whatever reason, if that would be his motive. Yep. You know, to oh, yeah. to, to get rid of his girlfriend. Of course. Uh, you know, so I mean, you can you can see why not why, but it, what his motive would be, I guess, if you will. Uh, he's a suspect still at this point. For sure. Know? For sure. But I mean, he's showing up and has been nothing but open and honest. So Cooperative. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So his wife is asked to confirm the alibi that he did or didn't murder his mistress. Yeah. That's shitty to have to yeah. use your wife as your alibi yeah. for your girlfriend. Don't, yeah. That sucks. Poor Haley, her mom missing and her father being held as a murder suspect Sleeps that night at a foster house. Oh, that poor baby. Her closest family members, as said previously, were eight to nine hours away in Wyoming. And at this point, Haley hasn't been told much of anything. She has no reason to believe her dad would ever hurt her mom. She has a million questions running through her mind about where her mom might be and, and nothing but uncertainty sleeping in the home of a stranger. And the part that hurts my heart is, is that in her words, you know, when she told the detective that her mom doesn't love her dad anymore. Oh yeah. Right. Like that's the part that hurts my heart. That sucks. Thursday, February 9th, DNA results quickly come back indicating the blood found on the garage floor was in fact that of Tammy Rhea. Analysts at the lab matched the DNA using some of Tammy's personal items. Given the amount of blood found on the scene, police now fear Tammy is certainly dead. Of course, there's no easy or perfect way to relay such tragic news to 12-year-old Haley. It was Detective Troy Swenson who sat down with Haley that day and told her, quote, You're going to have to help me with this because this is going to be tough for me too. I got little kids at home too, so um, we believe that your mom is dead. There's no easy way that I can tell you that, sweetheart. Haley can be heard crying. Right now, your dad has been arrested for her murder. We have not found her body yet. For Haley, it didn't seem real. It felt like she was in a TV show. In part, she believed it because her mom would never have left without telling her. But another part of her hoped her mom was still out there because they hadn't found her yet. Detective Swenson says, quote, if there's anything I can do to help you, you just tell these guys, and they'll let me know. Haley, still crying, asks Detective Swenson, do I still keep my kitty cat? So that's really tough, and there's a few things that stick out to me. In a later interview when reflecting on this story, Detective Swenson says, quote, they don't prepare you at the academy that you're going to have to tell people that their loved ones are not coming home. That right there is possibly one of the more underspoken of aspects of how strenuous law enforcement is. Although his heart was in the right place, it did bother me that he chose to break this news to Haley at a point where she had never been more alone in her life or in this world. She spent the previous night in a stranger's house after her mom went missing and her father was taken into custody. Maybe it's a small matter for me to get hung up on because everyone's just doing the best they can. But I just wish he would have waited until her grandparents arrived. I, if I had to guess, I, I bet he thinks about that, if not every day, often. What's, what's, it's just a matter of a few hours at that point, you know? Yeah. And I, I would bet there's some regret there. That day, Thursday the 9th. Or I would hope so. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. It was, it was tough. I, I got, I felt critical of it and I just had to kind of move on. And yeah. 
So that day, a massive group of volunteers in conjunction with law enforcement, as well as aerial helicopter support from the National Guard, came together in search of Tammy. Their target area is the area surrounding the Oahe Dam, which is along the Missouri River. This dam creates the fourth largest human-made reservoir in the United States. It was a National Guardsman in a helicopter who spotted a body near the dam. As investigators approached the site, a trail of bloody clothing leads to the naked body of Tammy Rhea. She's covered in more lacerations and stab wounds than officers can count. A wide gash splits her throat. This murder seemed personal. It seemed angry. It wasn't just gruesome. This was humiliating, as if the killer wanted payback. She was taken to Rapid City for an autopsy, where a pathologist, Dr. Donald Hobby, would later report in his autopsy that Tammy Rhea sustained approximately 50 stab wounds, many of which came after she had already expired. Although there was no murder weapon for comparison, the depth of the stab wounds on Tammy's chest indicated the knife was plunged with enough force to pierce her chest plate and strike vital organs. She had numerous she had numerous defensive wounds on her hands. It appeared Tammy grabbed the knife, but it was pulled away, cutting her palms to the bone. Samples are taken, fingernail scrapings, DNA samples, rectal and vaginal swabs, and blood samples. There is no DNA evidence found indicating Brad committed the murder. Brian Clark is still considered a suspect, and now, with Tammy's body and no decisive evidence as to how it got there or who killed her. It's time for detectives to interview Brian Clark's wife and confirm his alibi. Prior to this, Brian Clark's spouse had no idea of the affair. Now, just hours after learning of her husband's infidelity, Brian has asked her to be his alibi. Now, that's one hell of a situation. She stands by her man, and tells investigators Brian was home with her and the kids on the night of Tammy's disappearance. Well, was was he? She says he was, according to her. Weeks go by without much more progress. Investigators are left with more questions than answers. Then, on March 9th, the DA, as well as two additional prosecutors and a judge receive a somewhat anonymous letter. And I say somewhat anonymous because the writer claimed to be, quote, a cousin of Brian Clark's. No name was given. I hope he comes from a big family. Otherwise, <laughs> it might be easier to pinpoint. It would be, be really easy yeah. to find the old yeah. cousin here. The words, quote, regarding Tamara Rhea were written on the outside of the envelope just below the address. The letter briefly outlined the affair between Brian and Tammy that it had been, go that it had been going on for a year or more and it nailed some locations and some other details. The letter also said in part, quote, on 2-7, my cousin came home in a black Durango covered in blood from the Fawn Motel where he had sex twice. Later that night, he went to her house for sex. He grabbed blankets and they left. They went somewhere where they had sex on the blanket for a bed. She took her clothes off except for her shirt. She then told him to wear a rubber since she planned on having sex. He asked with her husband. She then asked about the motel. He jammed it in her blank where she called him a blank. It was an illegible. He flipped out and started stabbing her. She gashes his cheek with her ring. He fell, started stabbing her. She started running where he stabbed her in the back five times, then her throat. He then wrapped her body and dumped her body. I helped wipe down the Durango. We put the bloody clothes in three plastic bags. End quote. This letter included numerous details that were not available outside of the investigation. How the attack took place, locations of sexual encounters between Brian and Tammy, it also stated that Brian raped Tammy in the rectum and the condom fell off inside her. 
This prompts a re-examination of Tammy's body, where the pathologist does indeed find the condom still inside her. Hold on a second. Um, they didn't. They didn't find that during the autopsy. No. I'm sorry. I just yelled that into the microphone. No, but for but the love of all that is holy, really. Seems like a big miss. I've never done one. Wow. But it seems like a thing that you you wouldn't want to ha- overlook in a murder I investigation. Mean, come on. Yeah, I also have never done one. I sounding very judgy. It sounded like I, you know, do them on my no, free hey, time. But like, no. But come, uh, come, come on, come on. Like you wait until you you receive a letter, and then you're like, oh, hmm, shoot, should have checked that. Shoot, like, gosh dang. Yeah, like come on, figure it out. Do better. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a stunning claim. The letter is obviously authentic in its information. And it forces police to again reconsider Brian Clark as a suspect. Although Brian's wife confirmed he was home on the night Tammy was murdered, detectives have to check if it was possible that Brian could have snuck out. It turns out his wife often sleeps on the recliner because of a bad back. And the recliner is exactly where she slept on the night in question raising even more suspicion in Brian's direction. This has nothing to do with it, but could it be, could she have a bad back because she sleeps in a recliner? I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> I, that could I, be part of it. But. You know, causality, correlation, right. uh, I don't know. Yeah. Several days later, the DNA results from the condom come back, and there's nothing of value. At that point, the body was far too degraded, and whatever might have been found in the condom was compromised. Hmm. Well, maybe if you would have found it the first time around, it wouldn't have been. And something Brad said during his interview stuck out in the mind of detectives. Quote from Brad. You see evidence all the time get compiled on a guy, and they're later... They're later on found innocent from the DNA and stuff like that. That's why I think that when you eventually find the body, I'll be absolved because it wasn't me. Another search is conducted at the Rhea home. This time, investigators are looking for anything that might connect Brad to Brian. In the process of searching Brad's bedroom dresser, a detective finds a small recording device. There's approximately 30 minutes of recorded footage. Much of it is just dead space and static. It's pretty clear the device was set to record and then planted somewhere that it might capture Tammy in the act of having an affair. The recording doesn't reveal too much. It's Tammy speaking with Brian Clark likely a call from her to him at Kmart. Then she says, quote, It's just me. I just needed to hear your voice because Brad left me a long note in my car. End quote. There's a pause. Quote, He's just making it really hard because he just doesn't understand. I love you very, very much. In spite of being found in Brad's dresser, the second search of the house, mind you, There's nothing on the file to prove Brad made the recording until investigative analysts find deleted recordings. It's likely Brad deleted them, which sent the files to the trash, but he never emptied the trash folder. On the deleted file is a practice conversation between Brad and himself playing the roles of Brian and Tammy talking to one another. It sounded like he placed the digital recorder in the vehicle, then exchanged the dialogue with himself like a weirdo to see if it would pick up the conversation in Tammy's vehicle. I bet he's pretty grateful for his embarrassing slip up there of not deleting his trash. Yeah. 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 I don't want to say it's a rookie move or anything because... kind of. Yeah. Worked out for him. 
I'm guessing. Brad planted the digital recorder in the Durango, wrote Tammy a note, and left flowers in her car, expecting she'd call Brian in response to that. And it worked. And it also proved Brad knew the identity of Tammy's lover, something he vehemently denied. Finally, investigators have evidence that Brad was in fact aware of Brian. But what about the letter from Cousin Anon? All of Brad's calls from jail were monitored, as well as every letter he sent, opened, and read before being mailed. It turns out Brad had a visitor just days prior to the letter's arrival at the DA's office, his twin brother, Brett. It doesn't take long for police to catch up with Brett and arrest him in Wyoming. In his vehicle, officers find a yellow notepad with a letter written on it. Don, you want to take a guess at what that letter said that he had in his yellow notepad? Well, if he's anything like me, it's probably like a rough draft of the letter. And then he like rewrote the letter. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's. Oh yeah. It was the template of the letter mm-hmm. the DA received earlier that week. The letter attempting to frame Brian Clark and directing the investigation to the condom. When Brett. Oh yeah. Wait. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. The letter. Yeah. yeah. Hey, no, I'm here. I'm here for it, but I'm. Yep. Still. That left another question. How did Brad get Brian's used condom? Evidently, according to Brian, whenever he and Tammy had sex, Brian, quote, disposed of the condom by tossing it out the window on his way home. Brian, that's fucking gross. Brian, you're that guy, right? You know, when you're walking along with your dog, right? And your dog's like, oh, what's that? And it's like, no, 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 don't touch that. Ew, that's disgusting. What a right? nightmare. Right? Or you're walking along with your kids and your kids are like, oh my gosh, what's that, mom? Is that a balloon? No, please do not touch that. Um, I mean, yes, that is a balloon. It is just a really icky balloon and we're just not going to touch that. Somebody yeah. spit on that. Brian, yuck. Dude, Brian, you've caused a lot of uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, do better. Thanks, man. Detectives were convinced Brad recovered that condom after following Tammy and Brian. Picked it up on the... Oh, yeah. That's gross. Yeah. Also, it's bad for the environment, Brian. Way bad. Mm -hmm. It's bad for everybody. And the letter, to this point, the letter Brett went in, and they weren't, they were, mon- all of it, all of this stuff was monitored, but not like actively. So they had to go back and watch that, which is why they didn't really catch it in real time. Then went back and looked at it. So Brad held a letter up to the window and Brett sat on the other side and recorded mm-hmm. it. So he tried real hard to be smart. He, Brad really thought he had it all figured out way more than investigators ever could. He did really underestimate the cops. Um, I mean, he did. Now, now, and to this point, There is still no physical evidence connecting Brad to the murder of Tammy. That is, until they dig deeper into Brett and Brad's jailhouse visits. In another of Brad's not-so-brilliant ideas, he drew his twin brother a map of the Oahe Dam with directions to, quote, all the best fishing spots with instructions to visit them at night and get some stuff he forgot there. So I'm guessing he put like fishing in quotations too, because he seems really, really smart. Like fishing spots. Go to my fishing spots. I think I forgot my rod out there. So using this map and other information gathered during Brad's phone conversations with Brett, agents with the Watertown Search and Rescue Team, aided by a bloodhound and cadaver dog, discover three City of Pierre garbage bags containing bloody linens, rubber gloves, bloody blankets, panties, a bloody blue tarp, and a box of condoms with one missing. The garbage bags were hidden in a row of juniper hedges that crime scene analysts were able to link to samples taken from the bottom of Brad's shoes. Additionally, the garbage bags were the same type as found in the garage of the Rhea home. These last bits of evidence 
help detectives put together a theory on how Tammy's murder went down. Brad stripped the bed, put a tarp over the mattress, and layered several sheets and a blanket over the tarp. This sicko set up an evidence-concealing kill space where he could ambush his wife while she slept. Tammy never saw it coming. At no point in Brad's life had he ever been violent or shown a will to commit violence. Tammy didn't go to sleep that night questioning her safety. There was nothing to warn her of the knife before it plunged into her chest. From the wounds on her hands, it was clear Tammy tried to fight, tried to grab the knife blade, but it wasn't enough. The tarp, a torn shirt, and some of, some of the bedding appeared to have been cut by a knife as well, although there was no way to forensically prove the tears were caused by a blade. This was all happening while their daughter, his daughter, was down the hall, right? I mean... Yes. 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 Shockingly, this violent assault didn't wake young Haley from her slumber. Based on the evidence and likely timeline, Haley was fast asleep when Brad killed her mom, wrapped her body in the blankets and tarps, loaded it into the Durango, drove into the South Dakota night to hide the evil deed and dispose of his wife. Brad's final despicable act was planting evidence inside her, the used condom. It's very likely the highway patrolman who pulled Brad over did so within hours of Brad disposing of the body. The Durango hadn't been cleaned yet. There was no search of the vehicle, nothing to draw that officer's attention. But that, that same night, and that's why I was breathing all heavy and kind of freaking out and acting nervous. Like, breakups, breakups suck, right? And, and, we all handle them differently. We kind of going back to your first, you know, the, the first part of, of kind of how you opened this, right? We all handle them differently. How, how can you hate someone so much or be so angry with someone, first of all, to murder them? Second of all, to stab them with a knife so hard that it goes through their chest plate. Into the bedding underneath them. Underneath, like through their entire body. Also, what kind of knife is that? Second of all, third, whatever point I'm on, who knows? I lost count. Uh, a, you, that, one, two, and two, D. Right. That, that you, you take a used condom. It is so bad. What? Like... It's depraved. What is wrong with you? Like how... There was no indication that, that... No criminal history of this man's life at all. And, and, and no indication of violence or, or anything. Not from any family or anyone. And all because she stopped loving you. Maybe you were a shitty husband. Maybe and, and you, had, you lacked self-awareness. You didn't meet her needs. Yep, she had an affair. I'm really sorry about that. And I bet you she is too. You rotten son of a bitch. Continue. Seconded. The trial began in January of 2007. Prosecutors felt their case was really strong. They had motive along with evidence of Brad attempting to frame and implicate Brian Clark. But at trial, Brad Rhea made a shocking shift in his story. One that profoundly altered his defense strategy. Of course, this is going to piss me off, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Man. Taking the stand in his own defense, Brad Rhea testified that he and Tammy slept in separate bedrooms because Brad suffered from restless leg syndrome. It's a neurological disorder that causes uncomfortable sensations in your legs and an irresistible urge to move them. RLS is triggered by attempting to rest or sleep and can only be relieved by moving your legs. You know what? I'm in perimenopause and my legs get tingly and I need to move them too. I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> so far, That's he's just his reason for sleeping in a different bed. Okay, well, I have yet to be convinced. 
Brad maintained the stance that he was not aware of Tammy's affair at the time of her disappearance and that he did not know Brian Clark, even though the investigation linked him quite clearly to the digital recorder. For that, he had no explanation. Additionally, Brad claimed the sex life of his marriage was really healthy. He and Tammy had sex every other day for the last half dozen years. In his mind, and in his heart, their marriage was on the mend. His final claim, the true lowlight of Brad Rhea's testimony, was that he awoke the night of Tammy's murder to find his 12-year-old 80-pound daughter standing over the bloody body of her mother with a knife. Petite little Haley Rhea, fueled by sadness and anger over her parents' pending divorce, stabbed her own mother to death in a burst of rage because she blamed Tammy. He claimed Haley. He awoke to find her in a trance-like state, bloody knife in hand, staring down at her mother. And the girl had no memory of the massacre. Everything that followed in terms of hiding the body was his effort to protect Haley and shield her from trouble. He said his only crime was trying to cover up the murder for his daughter's sake. That's why he lied to police so many times to protect Haley. Okay. So if he's trying to protect his daughter, uh, just a quick story. There was this guy that like quite a few years older than me, uh, in high school who, um, raped this, uh, this woman, things are fuzzy. Basically, the dad pled guilty to it. The dad, the the father was like, nope, I'll take it. I, he took the fall for it. Whoa. Super weird story. Not going to go into details anyway. I, Yeah. Probably didn't need to go into that. But basically, if you're going to take the fall for your child, right, you just do it. You just do it. You just do it. Yeah. You don't go through all of this. I'm not saying you should. Like, that's not what I'm saying, most parents probably would. I just made this really weird. Um, I, I do that really well, but I'm trying to make what I'm trying to say is like, you you don't plead not guilty. You don't take it to trial. You don't then throw the defense out there that my daughter did it. I'm so sorry. I'm still saying not guilty. She was in a trance. It's weird. This is the reasonable doubt. Sorry. Yeah, and let me remind you. Tammy was stabbed 50 times. The pathologist testified many of the stab wounds, of course, were made after she was already dead. Not to mention the number of logic leaps required to make Brad's story functional. It was all inconsistent and he changed answers constantly. He only tried to, he said he only tried to frame Brian after learning about Brian through court documents. His lawyer provided him when he was being held. Uh, what about the condom? Right? Again, all these logic leaps and inconsistencies in, in his story. He had the condom because he was, yeah, right? He was following him. It, man, none of it adds This up. guy sucks really bad. Like, and get this. Oh, man, there's more. Tammy Rhea's body was found in the same spot where she'd gone to have sex with Brian Clark on at least two occasions. Where she was planted was not a mistake. Haley has now endured the death of her mother, the loss of her father, then finally the accusation of murder. On the witness stand, Haley recalled that on the Sunday before her mother's disappearance, when she first learned from her parents they were getting a divorce, her father was, quote, acting weird. He wouldn't eat and he'd just sit in his bed and not talk or anything. On the morning. That's that's because he had just killed your mom. Well, not yet. No, that was the Sunday before it happened. Yep, that was the. That's because, yeah, that was the Sunday before it happened. Okay. On the morning her mother was reported missing, Haley went to Tammy's bedroom to find an unmade bed. Her mother's cell phone still on the dresser. Tammy's purse was still in the kitchen. 
When Haley told her father that mom is gone, where's mom? Brad replied to his daughter, your mom has a boyfriend. She's probably with him. That's a hell of a thing to say to your kid who had no idea that her mom was having an affair or any idea that you were sitting there as a murderer. As Brad drove Haley to school that morning, he told her, quote, don't tell anybody about mom not being home because it's personal. She also testified that on the night of the murder, Brad Rhea woke her up in the middle of the night to say, quote, I love you so much. And he was doing laundry. And then Haley fell back asleep. In spite of her small frame, again, 82 pounds, five foot and change, the defense attempted to correlate her ability to serve a volleyball overhand to plunging a knife into her mother. Haley had to correct him and show him that she only served the ball underhand. Although Haley loved her father, she was much, much, much more close with her mother. Obviously, she denied the preposterous murder accusation. Brett Rhea, Brett, twin of Brad, also testified for the prosecution, confirming that he copied a letter held up to the window during a visit he had with Brad. Brett did claim, however, that his twin never admitted to killing Tammy. When Brett openly wondered to Brad, like, well, how do you have all these case details? Brad told him the information was taken from case paperwork. Brett did as, did as his brother asked and mailed the anonymous letter to three prosecutors and the judge. Brett was charged with four counts of accessory to a felony. He pleaded guilty to two of those as part of a plea deal to testify against his brother. The prosecution laid it out pretty clear. Brad was angry over the affair as well as the divorce, and he didn't... Angry doesn't cut it. Yeah, beyond, beyond anger, of course. He was upset, raging. Right, sorry. All of that. I'm not yelling at you. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't, he also didn't want to share any financial assets with Tammy in the event of a divorce. He instead laid out a calculated plan to kill his wife and frame her lover. It was a payback kill and the placement of her body was intentional. When the frame job failed, he sunk as low as the depths of hell and attempted to implicate his own daughter in what is undoubtedly one of the most cowardly acts we have ever seen on Midwest murder. Wow. I, I'm angry. I'm, I, this is, I yelled. (laughs) A jury found Brad guilty. He was given a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. We do get a little bit of justice there. Haley relocated and moved to a new school with her family. I believe it was Tammy's parents. When Haley moved to a new school, students were informed of what had happened, but she just wanted to integrate and be a regular kid. As an adult, and even in her teen years, she went on to become a very powerful voice and advocate for domestic violence. She speaks in public schools. She's done a TEDx. Oh, that makes me so happy because all throughout the entire thing, I was like, oh, please tell me that someone got her therapy. That's a lot. That's, yeah. that's a, a lot, but it, a when, lot of, it, a, a lot of people would have fallen and fall, could have yeah. fallen into a very dark direction yeah. and having it, faced this in their life. Yeah, yeah. And it went even further. It went, it went even better. Like, oh, wow. That's exciting. As an adult reflecting yeah. on her childhood, Haley felt like she was naive to the abuse her mother endured because it wasn't of a physical nature. Her father was very controlling, emotionally and financially abusive. He was obsessed with everything Tammy did and tried to control all the places she went and followed her everywhere she went. Looking back on her childhood, Haley remembered many times when her and her mom would go somewhere just to hang out together and her father would just show up. Haley went on to study criminal justice with hopes of becoming a victim's witness advocate. Uh, Over the years, she's maintained periodic contact with Detective Swenson. She's now a mother herself. The last time Haley saw her dad was at his sentencing. Even during his final words, 
This guy showed no remorse and did not apologize for what he had done. She has never seen him since. From the outside looking in, the Rhea family seemed to be living a normal, happy life. Full-time employment, a nice house, public appearances, a healthy and active kid, Christmas gifts under the tree, birthday parties, happy, happy photos at home full of smiles. Her parents went to her sporting events together. There were no obvious signs of Brad Rhea's impending breakdown to violence. And people always wonder, why don't they just leave? 75% of women are killed by their abuser and are murdered when they attempt to leave. Tammy Rhea was killed 48 hours after telling her husband she wanted a divorce. Just 48 hours. Like she was, she was getting there. Yeah. She was just about there. Yep. Every nine seconds in the United States, a woman is assaulted or beaten. One in three women will experience being physically abused by a partner in their life. And this, this, a lot of this information actually comes from Haley herself in, in talks that she has given. So what can we do, of course, for these people? We can be a good friend. We can give hugs. We can listen. We can reassure them it's not their fault. And we can focus on them and not their abuser. And also don't, I, this is my own, um, from personal experience with a friend, don't judge them for staying. Just support them. I think like that's, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. You can learn more and seek help by calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's 1-800-799-7233. A big shout out to our DVCC in Minot for all the work they do in our community and to organizations like theirs everywhere. Your work is appreciated. Big time. Sources for this story, caselaw.com, The Argus Leader, Casper Star Tribune, and Rapid City Journal Newspaper Stories by Joe Kafka of the Associated Press, State vs. Rhea Court Documents, Brad Rhea vs. Darren Young Documents, The Three Laws of Emotion article in Forbes by Jessica Hagee, The National Institute of Neurological Disorder, Alex Woodworth, in our timeline, onthisday.com, globalgrind.com, and therichest.com, and the episode uh, from Investigative Discovery, The Devil Speaks, as well as Haley's own TEDx Talk. Midwest Murder is co-hosted by Don Palumbo and Jonah Lanto. This episode was written by me and produced as well by me. And Sydney, one hell of a night. We are grateful to be here for the very first time. Thank yeah, you so thank much you. for having us. Make sure you uh, remember to name this episode by the by the door in the basket. So That's where you do. Thanks thank for having you. us.